The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables, and we are still living through very uncertain times. And while we get through them all together, SunGrow is committed to protecting employees and reliably serving its customers around the world. It also has a very extensive network across the U.S., which it is using to distribute face masks to communities in need. You can learn more about SunGrow's products and its work during coronavirus at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by CorePower. CorePower is a leading U.S.-based developer of battery cell technology, serving utility, industrial, and mission-critical markets across the globe. It designed and manufactures a 1,500-volt Mark I energy storage system, which offers best-in-class safety features, market-leading energy density, and low installation and operation costs. CorePower's modules are now on the market, and you can find more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E power.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, a low-carbon grid could come even faster than we thought possible. Costs for clean energy have fallen so quickly and so far that we don't have to wait until 2050 for a 90% clean grid. It could happen 15 years sooner. That is the word from a new study from UC Berkeley, and we're going to dig in. Then pollsters say Americans are fully bought in to a clean energy future and want bigger societal issues addressed with it. But among crucial swing voters, is anyone even thinking about climate? We'll talk about what it means to mobilize climate aware voters versus swing voters who aren't really thinking about the issue. Lastly, BP decides its assets are worth $17 billion less than they thought. It's a massive write down. Is it a tipping point, a leading indicator? We'll dig into what's happening in the oil space. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are with me to discuss these stories as always. Catherine's there in Virginia. She is our policy expert. She's co-founder of 38 North Solutions. How are you? I'm great. I'm still basking in the glow of having all of my kids visit me over the weekend uh, at socially distance. But I had the the kids that are in Durham and my daughter, who's fairly local, all came over. And uh, it was like Mother's Day. You had a... Nice blow-up pool in the backyard, too. You sent a picture of that. That looked like a lot of fun. Oh, my God. Those, like, adult blow-up baby pools are amazing. Um, They sell out instantly, too. So my son, who just graduated, got all these gift cards, and we cobbled them together and got one of those things. And you have to get a little pump, too. So we got a little pump. And, man, it was worth every nickel. Can we come over and record from the pool? Yeah, we would all fit, too. Trust me. (laughs) Jigger Shah is president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He's in Bethesda, Maryland. Or is he on a farm somewhere? I don't know. What's this Zoom background I see? (laughs) So I've been on Zoom so much now that I've been featuring Generate Capital projects um, in the back of my my Zoom. This one is our renewable natural gas facility in Indiana. I love it. Uh, You got some cows keeping you company. It's a very pleasant sight there. So... (laughs) Let's talk about this report that just came out on decarbonization in the electricity sector. Most decarbonization proposals play out over 30 years. They aim toward 2050. When we look at a lot of the targets from leading utilities on clean energy or renewables, they often focus on this 2050 date. But there's this new roadmap that came out from researchers at UC Berkeley and the policy firm Energy Innovation. And it shows that the grid can get 90% clean fast 
in just 15 years. And region by region, they lay out exactly how. That means no new fossil fuel plants, lower rates for consumers, 85,000 lives saved, 500,000 additional jobs. So prices for renewables and storage have fallen so quickly that our understanding of what's possible hasn't kept pace. And to some, the conversations we've had on this podcast have maybe seemed unrealistic in the early days, right? Uh, But now they're feeling very realistic. So what's it going to take to get there? Catherine, what is in this report? What does it conclude exactly? Yeah, I spent some time talking to Sonia Agarwal, who was one of the leads on this and was the author of the policy report. And she said they started... She's at Energy Innovation. Yes, she's at Energy Innovation. And Sonia said... Here's what we started with. We didn't start with this predefined idea of 90% by 2035. She said, how do we get mostly clean by sometime soon? That was how they put it forward to themselves. And they wanted to make sure they could get there without raising costs for customers. So that was how they did their modeling. The modeling is mostly on the bulk power system. So keep that in mind. But they found that you can get to 90% by 2035. In fact, they found that you could get to 90% by 2030, but they were worried that that would sound unreasonable. So it's at 2035 now. And they basically said, you know, with a couple of good policies with um, that 90% clean grid is absolutely doable with renewables, um, without coal or new natural gas, that you can keep prices down for customers and that you can avoid trillions of dollars in health and environmental impacts and create half a million jobs a year every single year. What are we talking about when we talk about 90% clean? Mostly wind, solar, and storage is what they're looking at. I mean, those were the key technologies. One of the, you know, a couple of things came in to play here. One, as you mentioned, is that the costs have dropped so much faster than anybody expected and that any other reports have taken into consideration. But the other piece is that renewables can work in places where because the technology and price has come down, you don't have to cite them in the most optimal places. So it used to be, you know, everything penciled out for solar in Arizona and things penciled out for wind in Iowa. But now you can install solar and wind in places that you would not normally have thought of that. So renewables are able to be installed in many, many more places than originally conceived. Jigger, we've seen a lot of pieces of research that show with some ambition we can get to a very clean grid pretty quickly. I think this shows that we can accelerate those efforts. But like we've seen Mark Jacobson's work showing this wind, water, solar scenario, 100% wind, water, solar. Um, I forgot what the exact date was. Forgive me for not remembering exactly the date that he was shooting for. But that research actually got a lot of pushback for his assumptions and modeling. It caused a decent amount of debate within the industry. But all the same, there's been plenty of research that shows we can do a lot in the electricity sector fairly quickly. How is this different from previous research? Well, it's, you know, it obviously comes after we've already accomplished all of these you know, price goals, right? So it's really just taking the most recent price uh, data points from the previous 12 months and saying, if we project it forward, what would it cost to decarbonize the grid? I think, you know, for me, what struck me is that, you know, as I've said many times in the podcast, that, you know, America has sort of lost its ability to do big things. If you think about it, this whole thing started with Al Gore's presentation in 2008, when he said, within 10 years, we could decarbonize the entire electricity grid. And frankly, I think he was right 
back then, right? And then when Mark Jacobson came forward and said, we can do it, certainly some people said, well, we don't really like the technology choices you made, and we don't really like some of the assumptions you made. But then Jesse Jenkins and Chris Clack and others came out with their models and said, yeah, you know, we can largely get there, you know, 91% or something. Maybe the last 10 or 15% has to be nuclear. Um, And then even the National Renewable Energy Laboratory came out with its own uh, study that said that, yes, this is absolutely possible and likely. And so I think the bigger challenge that I have is that we continue to squabble over what we're going to do to meet that last 10% instead of focusing on why is it that we're stuck at 15% or 18%. Right? Why are we stuck at such low penetration levels right now? And why can't we move faster? I mean, even if this number was 60% by 2025, fine. Why can't we achieve 60% by 2025? Why can't we get people to work? Well, why are we stuck? I mean, this maybe gets us, uh, steers us into the policy question uh, faster than I intended. But we had Leah Stokes on the podcast earlier this spring. And the thesis of her book is that we would be a lot better off or we would have been far more advanced in the amount of clean energy we would have deployed had utilities not been fighting this over the last couple of decades. And she clearly lays out her theory of the case. Um, Is that what we're talking about here? Or is there something else that's preventing us from getting past that level? Just help us understand what is holding us back. Well, and they're still fighting it, right? To be clear, you know, One of the big things that comes out of the report here is around how the bulk power system works and transmission works, right? And when you think about how it works, we reviewed Russell Gold's book, you know, Superpower, and Mike Skelly's work around trying to figure out how to build long, long, uh, you know, transmission lines. And one of the things that we don't really realize is that our transmission is horribly underutilized, right? We talk about how they're maxed out. These transmission lines are carrying power less than 30% of the time in terms of like its capacity, 30% utilization, right? And, and we don't have the most basic technologies installed to figure out how to get better utilization of that infrastructure. Things like smart wires, where smart wires basically reroutes power, um, you know, the long way around to be able to use more of the transmission, Right. And remember, electricity moves so fast that when you go the long way around, it takes 0.1 seconds longer for it to get to where it wants to go. So it's not like it's a big imposition. But while the UK has deployed it nationwide or is in the middle of doing it nationwide and Australia and others are doing it, the US is not doing anything but pilots. In fact, I would say that the Canadians who share the same grid as us are working faster to unlock transmission technologies. And so then the challenge becomes like, you know, whose job is it to show leadership here? What the utilities have said is that if you force us to go along, we will go along happily. That means you let us rate base all this stuff. We'd be happy to do it. But we are not going to proactively propose solutions that are 90% cheaper than what we're currently rate basing for our shareholders. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, when I talked to Sonia, it reminded me of when we had the Clean Power Plan, and we've already met the targets in the Clean Power Plan, and you can say those targets were not high enough. We did. But what that did was it, it got everybody kind of rowing in the same direction. And so everybody, because utilities do have you know three to five-year 
planning processes that they have to, you know, there's these integrated resource plans that they need to go back and revisit. And so they they have a long planning horizon. And so that made them start planning directionally. Now, of course, that has been pulled back. But the one thing that Sonia said that would be the most effective thing that we could do is to put a clean energy standard in place. It's not to give people money, but it's to actually put something in place that would force the hand and get everybody to use the same benchmarks and targets going forward. So I actually disagree with that. My sense is is that when you read the report, the report basically says that the whole thing pays for itself. It was actually a condition that they put on themselves, right? They said it has to pay for itself so they won't do it. I actually think we need to pay everybody off. Like my sense is, is that like if you actually went to every single person in the country who had an ability to make a decision here and you said, this is a $1.7 trillion deployment, I think, according to the report. And we said, here's another half a trillion dollars. And who wants it, right? But all of your approvals and permits have to be in line and then we will pay you off. My sense is that would do more than a clean energy standard, right? I think that there are people hurting across the country in terms of their budgets. And if you said, look, we're going to put people to work and we're going to give you bonuses. To be clear, this is what Australia does, right? Australia pays people off, right? They basically say, if you want to do clean infrastructure, if you do the right thing, the federal government will basically match uh, you know, some of the money that you've spent locally and put that into your coffers that you can use for schools or other purposes. Because like, I, I have to say, I'm so frustrated by the fact that we're proposing solutions that got us here, right, which is this 20% RPS standard and other clean energy standards. I don't think it gets us to 100%. Like, I just think that like, to get to 100%, we just have to tell people, get on board, We'll pay you enough money to get you on board. Not unlike how the ACA was put together with the Cornhusker kickback. That seems reasonable, but to what end? I mean, you have to have some sort of target. I mean, if you don't have to save the planet, de- that that's yeah, the but end. To save the, right? But what does that even mean, right? You have to have numbers tied to it and say, like, this is what we need to do, and then here are the like the mechanisms we're going to get there. If that's no, like paying for instance, off the way you pay off, making sure that the, the regulations way you pay off communities in New York is it's called a pilot, right? It's basically a negotiation for property taxes. And, you know, they say, here's your economics. We know that you can afford 50% more property taxes than the next guy. Right. And so we're going to charge you that much. And you do it. You go to the local mayor and you say, fine, we'll pay 50% more property taxes than we are required to do under statute in exchange for getting this approval. You would do the same thing nationwide. You'd basically say, if you if you approve doing this thing, if you go to utility companies, say if you approve opting in to this thing, the federal government will give you this bonus check, right? You would just say to people, like, enough is enough, right? We need to actually decarbonize more quickly. And I love mandates like the next guy, but you and I both know that getting a federal clean energy standard passed is literally impossible. And so I think it's far easier for me to imagine putting a slush fund together at the Department of Energy and saying, what priorities do you want me to pay for, Governor? We're not putting something into people's pockets. We're saying, what priorities do you want me to pay for in exchange for your approval? This is a really interesting conversation, Catherine, because the clean energy standard isn't a new thing. And anyone who has followed this space for a while understands that this pops up uh, every election cycle, every couple election cycles. We've been talking about a federal clean energy standard since the 90s. And we can't get it done. So it's fallen on the states, which has been great because the states have driven a lot of activity. But it feels to me like while there's a lot new in this report that shows 
just how fast we can do this, there's also a reliance on some old policy ideas that haven't gone anywhere. So how do we think about that? I think what you need to do is look exactly at the states that have done that and have RPSs and through those RPSs have dropped, you know, shown that they can deploy these and drop the price of clean energy technology. So I think that is where you've got all of your case studies and your laboratories. And I think they have proven that if you have goals um, on the federal level, all be agreed upon as to where we want to go. And that's not the only policy they put forward. They also put forward, you know, like offering utilities um, debt financing on unpaid fossil costs so that they can, um, you know, buy, you know, close those plants down earlier and securitize them. And, you know, they have a lot of other ideas in here, too, that would enable utilities to get to that. But, I mean, I think we do look to the states and to what's worked and to say, why can't why can't we all do that? Why do some states have an advantage um, economically and with their health and well-being uh, because they've done RPSs? Why can't we do it from a federal level and, and uh, equalize a bit? There's a quote that you had on your Twitter bio, Jigger. I don't know if you still have it there, but it's uh, it's it's simple, not easy. Where'd that quote come from, by the way? I created it with uh, Mark Buckley from uh, from Staples. He was my, one of my first customers at Sun really? Edison. And if you remember, Staples had that easy button. Yes. <laughs> where you pushed it and it was like, that was easy. And I remember telling Mark one time, I was like, it's simple, not easy. Right? Because like, I think we all know exactly like how to model it and how the numbers work and how the spreadsheet works and all that stuff. But actually getting labor on board, getting the county commissioner on board, getting this person on board, getting this thing to happen, it's just really hard. And I feel like we've tried it this other way for 30 years where we would just coordinate, et cetera. And I just feel like we need, we're going to keep doing that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we stop coordinating and stop educating, but it does feel like we need something different. I love how your 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 solution is always buying people off, which uh, I appreciate for its bluntness. I think you should be running the renewable energy slush fund here. <laughs> he should be re- running Chicago, <laughs> right? But that is how things work. I mean, part of what I wanted to like, I, I just wanted to help educate people on is it's the the oil industry isn't powerful in D.C. because their employees are such good letter writers. It's not like. <laughs> oh my God, they just keep contacting the members of Congress and it's amazing. They just hear from them all the time. No, it's because when you think about how First Energy operates in Ohio or the oil industry operates, like they really do provide necessary money to fund campaigns for um, for a lot of these critical votes in Congress, right? And, and, you know, in general, our industry hasn't been as free-flowing. They've basically said, you know, like, you know, do the right thing. Here's the great example. Here's this thing. But like when it comes to writing a thousand hour check or two thousand hour check to the state representatives, it's not well coordinated like it is in the oil industry. And so when I say these things, I mean completely legally. I'm not saying that we pay people off literally, but I do think that everyone is always short on cash, right? It is always the case that schools are in disrepair and roads need to be fixed and things need to happen, right? And if our industry is investing $1.7 trillion across the country at a cost that actually fully pays for itself, well, then we can afford to spend an extra couple hundred billion dollars and actually pay for a couple of school upgrades in exchange for an approval. So let's talk about operationalizing these ambitious goals. Um, So again, not easy, but simple. 
Um, getting to this 90% clean grid by 2035 or so requires an average of 70 gigawatts per year of new wind and solar. The authors call that challenging but feasible. What do you make of this 70 gigawatt per year number? It's not challenging from the perspective of process, for instance. We know what interconnection processes and engineering reports we need, et cetera. It's not challenging from a manufacturing standpoint. We know how to scale up our manufacturing capacity. And frankly, 70 gigawatts is not a large number in in the totality of the manufacturing capacity of the world. So it's not something that we don't know how to do. Like challenging is a 10x increase. Challenging is not a 2x increase, right? A 2x increase is just a lot more people getting a lot more work, right? I think what's really challenging is getting the utility companies to upgrade their grid operations software. Right now, the way the grid operations in this country works is only incrementally better than it did 20 years ago when they just picked up the phone and called people and told people to turn on assets. This is why the utility and the grid operations people are so afraid of this stuff. Because the only way this works is if you fully digitize grid operations. Solar inverters have been able to provide, you know, just like advanced features to the grid on voltage support, etc. since the 1980s. They were banned from doing so by IEEE. And then they were more recently allowed to do so in 2018. And this is how Hawaii has balanced their grid. So all of these tools have been in place for a long time. But integrating them into the way in which we operate the grid probably takes until 2035. That's actually the long pole in the tent. Well, and they have to get rate recovery for doing a lot of this work. And utilities are far better at getting rate recovery for building new natural gas plants than, well, anything. Um, And the regulators are responsible for making sure the costs aren't going to go up for customers. Or if they do, it's justified. So that is the trick, is making sure that the utilities are able to put in those systems and to show that they're cost effective and that they will drive down costs for consumers over time. What do you make of this 70 gigawatt per year number, Catherine? When you talk to Sonia... Did she outline the the like the scope of that ambition? Yeah, she thought it was not unreasonable at all, as Jigger said, um, to double by in the 2020s. Um, and I think her point that we can build more renewables in places that aren't haven't been considered ideal locations, but you can get more out of because the technology's improved so much. You can get so much more out of it now. It's much more efficient. So I think that. Um, that it is absolutely feasible. And the issue is just, because I think the renewable energy industry is is ready to do it. I mean, I think they would, as Jigger said, they're they're poised and ready. The issue is, um, you know, getting approvals from regulators. One thing I wanted to just make sure that everybody had in the back of their mind, though, on this is that if you take the entire electric utility industry and you call it, say, 90% of the players, um, you could buy them all for $1.7 trillion just to be clear, right? That's the numbers we're talking about. Like they're not worth more than $1.7 trillion, the actual underlying utility companies. There's your new investment pitch, Jigger. No, but I mean, the reason I'm bringing it up is because I think that we all basically create these false uh, barriers to change, right? And I'm just saying that if we're prepared now as a country, right, as a community, in paying $1.7 trillion to decarbonize the electricity grid. And we're saying that these are the people that are in the way, that they have this rate-based issue, they have this issue, they have that issue, whatever. 
Like the numbers are like this is how super majors work. The way super majors work in the oil industry is they say, oh, this is really hard. Well, then let's get the Secretary of State to like cut a deal with Russia to let us like actually drill oil there and figure out how to bring the money back. Like that's how this works. We in general believe that everything is tied to whatever the rules are from the board game that we bought. And then we like meticulously read the rules and say we can only follow these rules. You can actually change the entire board game. Like that's that's what is on the table with decarbonization. And that is what we're talking about with the Green New Deal, right? We're changing the board game. We're saying we need to guarantee people jobs. We need to figure out how 60% of African-Americans don't live within 30 miles of a coal plant. Like we need to figure out how we actually change the rules of the entire game so that everyone benefits and that everyone succeeds. And that is, to me, I don't think this is a question of logic. It's a question of movement building. And how do you get you know, the vast majority of the country, you know, on board with this vision and pushing and fighting for implement, implementing it. And for those who are a little wonkier, that was the, you know, Jigger just gave you the humanistic side. But for those of you who are wonkier, the 2035 report website has a data explorer on it. And you can look at a whole host of numbers and play with them for jobs, for regional policies, for regional impacts and where you could build. It's just super interesting. And so if you start with some of these, like, what do we have to do to get to 90% or whatever your number is, then go back and look on this data explorers, like what happens if you don't? What and, and then you can extrapolate that into what are the what are the consequences to the communities there where you're not doing it? So the data show we can get to 90%. You've got that fancy tool that shows how you could get there regionally. Jigger says that we always focus on the last 10% without focusing on the other 90%. But you know what? I'm gonna I'm going to focus on that last 10% here to wrap up the discussion. How do we go from 90% clean to 100% clean? What, what is the missing solution set? Yeah, so this modeling tool only took into consideration the bulk power system. It didn't even look at the demand side, demand response, customer engagement. And that, I mean, we've got 15 years between now and 2035. I'll bet you that that side is going to be more than 10% by the end. Well, the other thing that this report did was it really focused a lot more on solar and wind and storage. But if you think about all the other technologies from small modular reactors that Oklo and others are taking through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or you look at geothermal, of which we have a ton of geothermal resources, or small hydro, many of those technologies actually can't reach the same two cents a kilowatt hour. But they can, at 10 cents a kilowatt hour, actually provide that last 10% and that long-term storage, if you will, um, that the modelers talk about. And, you know, paying 10 cents a kilowatt hour for that last 10% doesn't really break the bank. We are going to get mostly clean by sometime soon. When is sometime soon? Mostly clean by sometime soon. That's a great slogan. <laughs> mostly clean by sometime soon. <laughs> I, I think that's something my, my child said when he had to take a bath. He's like, I'll be mostly clean by sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, coming up, what do voters think of all this? First, though, a quick word about our supporters of the show. 
We're brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading supplier of inverters for renewables and for storage. And when they realized the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak, it put together a task force to make quick decision-making in the face of uncertainty. So what did that mean? Well, it put measures in place immediately to protect factory workers from infection. It worked closely with suppliers and customers to make sure that delivered inverter solutions were there safely and they were on schedule all over the world. And as a leading supplier of solar inverters in the U.S., it also leveraged its network to distribute face masks to communities in need. These are all ongoing efforts at SunGrow as it continues to develop and build and deliver inverters all over the world and in the U.S. Learn more about SunGrow at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Based in the U.S., Core Power is situated to meet the global demand for the energy storage market. Core Power is building the first large-scale battery cell manufacturing in the U.S., owned by an American company. And once operational, the million-square-foot facility will have 10 gigawatt hours of scalable manufacturing capacity. It's also going to leverage a cogeneration plant to be carbon neutral during regular hours and provide power back to the local grid when demand is low. From sourcing critical minerals to battery recycling management, Core Power, with its partners, offers an end-to-end energy storage management solution. Core Power's newly commissioned 2-gigawatt-hour Chinese factory is currently shipping product to customers for integration and testing. Learn more at K-O-R-E-Power. That's corepower.com. Something really stunning is happening right now in the U.S. As protesters fill the streets in cities all over the country day after day and demand policing reforms, a record number of Americans, 76 percent, say racism and discrimination is a big problem. That's according to a Monmouth University poll. And that is up 26 percentage points from 2015. It's actually having an indirect impact on the way people see renewables and climate. So there's this new peer-reviewed paper that came out from a few researchers. One of them is Leah Stokes, who our listeners will be familiar with. She's a professor of political science at UC Santa Barbara and Parrish Burquist and Mato Mildenberger. And they looked at how to combine policies, like social policies with climate policy. So they found that Americans overall were more likely to support clean energy policy as part of a coronavirus response if it included things like job retraining, universal health care, or minimum wage increases. They surveyed more than 1,000 people to see how they wanted Congress to respond to the pandemic, and adding climate priorities increased support as well. So they found that talking about investments in wind and solar increased support for a climate piece of the coronavirus package by 8.5 percentage points. So there's also some conflicting research out there, though, and and this really has to do with swing voters. Experts at the Yale Program on Climate Communication say Americans are fully bought in on a clean energy future, but it's not a priority for many of them, particularly with swing voters. And um, a focus group expert named Rich Tao, who was on the Climate 2020 podcast last week, says that among voters who went for Obama but then went for Trump, the climate just doesn't register at all. It is not on their minds. It is the lowest priority. And then when it comes to many Republican voters, like Republican base voters, it is the last priority. So what does all this mean? Catherine, in the wake of coronavirus and racial protests, what are voter priorities? Like, What do people want right now? And how does that fit together with climate stuff? 
you know, when we see polls that are like 80% of voters, including 70% of Republicans, support the U.S. government investing in creating jobs and clean energy, I mean, that is that is that is sustainable. That is not something that's going to go away because people do need jobs. They also, these are in states like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, where majorities still believe in that and believe that increased investment in clean energy over fossil fuels, even in Pennsylvania, would be important. And that was from a poll done on with SurveyMonkey and uh, the Coalition for Green Capital by Andrew Claster, who used to be an Obama pollster. And it just spoke to me that everyone sort of has connected the dots, and maybe we've helped them connect the dots, of economics, climate, and public health. And, and, and I think that that is how people are being able to keep all of these things in their head at the same time. The piece that's really clear for me across the political spectrum is that when you talk about clean energy in terms of job creation and economic growth and supporting domestic industries, people love it. And you can message it to basically any type of political group. But what is confusing to me is the research that's come out on how people respond to some of the other bigger societal and justice priorities uh, connected to climate action. So this this recent research uh, that I, I cited shows that people actually like some of these these other programs that are tied to climate priorities, like, again, job retraining, universal health care, racial justice, minimum wage increases. But other pollsters have found that that stuff turns a lot of folks who are swing voters or who are moderate Republicans off. And I'm trying to reconcile those two findings. I can't figure out if it's good politics to bring all these other issues into the climate conversation, because there are many different results here. Jigger, what do you think about that? Well, I'm not really an expert on politics, but I did sleep at a Holiday Inn Express last night. So, (laughs) I mean, look, I think that some of the data shows that Democrats um, who regularly vote in primaries um, said climate was their number one issue for an additional 14 percentage points of people, right? It was like three percentage points in 2016, and it was more like 17 percentage points um, this time around, right? So that's the reason why all of the primary candidates felt compelled to come up with Green New Deal documents, right? Like they wouldn't have written them if they didn't have some pollster telling them that they needed to write them. And so from that perspective... I feel like we got a lot of pages of what people would do. And when you think about what's going on now, you've got a bunch of people in Biden's uh, working group with AOC that's saying, you know, Hillary Clinton bought off Bernie Sanders by letting him change the the Democratic platform. But that's not going to be enough for us this time around, right? So this time around, they're actually saying, we are also going to tell you who you have to select for appointments in government right? And who you can't select. So one of the people they said that they will not allow in the Biden government is Larry Summers, because he's terrible on climate, right? And so you're starting to see a bunch of people starting to have influence there. When you think about what Trump proved in 2016, is he proved that this is not really about swing voters. It's not really about getting people to your side. It's about turning out your base. And so the question becomes, what turns out the Democratic base? For those people who are on the margins disaffected and don't believe that that government works for them. And remember, when November comes around, 
we're still going to have 20% of the population that either don't have a job or have, have stopped looking for a job, right? And so for those people who are likely to stay at home and not vote, you know, what is it that they want to hear about? And I think part of what they want to hear about is how these social programs are going to be tied to these climate job creating programs to create a unified theory under which they feel more comfortable. Right now, people's anxiety is at an all-time high, right? They've just lost their jobs. They're not sure whether they're going to come back, when they're going to be able to see their friends. And so I think that's why people are tying this together is not to bring over swing voters, but to mobilize base voters. This really depends on your theory of the case, right? Do you believe that you can win elections by mobilizing your base and getting more people out to vote? Or, which is the kind of more traditional democratic uh, way of looking at things, or do you convince swing voters in key battleground states? Catherine, those are two very different strategies for how you talk about a subject like climate change. What is the best approach or what approach do you think Democrats will will take? Those are different questions because like, are you solving for climate change or are you solving for getting Democrats in charge? Like, what's your goal? Aren't they the same? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe if you think about what's happening right now with young conservatives and evangelicals believing in climate change and wanting to do something and um, having videos put out that that cobble together statements that Reagan and Bush and Eisenhower have made about the importance of our environment. I mean, I think those people are thinking about how do we move forward on mitigating climate change in a way that is also meets with our conservative and religious politics. So so I actually think... Yes, and but they don't really have any sway in the Republican Party. Come on. Well, no, but forget about whether they have sway in the Republican Party. I would contend to you that most of them won't vote for a pro-choice candidate, regardless of what they think on climate change. And this is the challenge, right, is I think part of this is we think, hey, if this person is super pro-electric vehicle infrastructure, or this person is super pro, you know, like, you know, solving our water crises in Flint, Michigan, or whatever, whatever, that they're going to vote on those issues in the fall. And what you find is a lot of people, for instance, vote pro-choice and pro-life, right? A lot of people have other reasons for why they vote for one candidate or another. So they may be hugely supportive of taking strong climate action, but they're not hugely supportive enough to overcome other reasons for why they vote for people. Yeah. I mean, some people vote because they have an issue that they care about. Some people vote because it's something that impacts them personally. So right now, climate change is in people's faces. And this year is going to be a terrible year for drought and floods and hurricanes and wildfires. So it's going to be in people's faces and people are going to say, what are you doing for me? So that's another reason people vote for someone is like, what is that person going to do to help them? And then other people simply vote tribally. You know, they'll just vote for the party they've always voted for. So part of this is teasing out, you know, where where is the give on any of this? And I think connecting some of those dots, um, the Climate 2020 folks were, were talking, they made some really interesting points about, you know, not only promoting the economic benefits of clean jobs and the future, but also getting at 
what harm the rollback of environmental regulations has done. So all of the the water issues and air issues, and those are things that really impact people. And trying to get to both sides of this coin is going to be really important to, to try to get people who are a little mushy in the middle. Yeah, the other thing they were saying was linking it to COVID, right? Because in fact, the people who are most, you know, susceptible to um, getting sick, hospitalized, and then dying are people who had pre-existing conditions largely due to environmental reasons. Um, that's why, you know, black and brown people were more negatively affected by COVID than, than, than other populations. And so, you know, part of this is actually, you know, linking it to issues that are front of mind for people at the time at which the election occurs. I, I certainly don't have any particular expertise in election politics, right? So a lot of what I am thinking through comes from pollsters or, or or good writers who I'm reading. But it seems to me that there's a lot of debate still. Like, it's not clear whether turning out your base and getting more people to vote or focusing on swing voters is a better option than the other, right? I think there's still a lot of debate over, like, which strategy works better. But they're going to do both. I mean, to be clear, right, like, the AOC part of the party is going to use all these issues to turn out the base, right? That That's the whole point of that particular strategy. And then guess what? The billion dollars that Bloomberg's going to put in is to take the never Trumpers and all the people in the middle and try to get them to vote for Biden, right? They're going to do both. And it's not like Bloomberg and AOC are going to coordinate, even though they probably only live like 15 you know, minutes apart. But like, but my census is that they're going to have completely different strategies, and they're going after completely different voters. Um, and, you know, like, I, I my, my sense is that climate, while I love it, and it's so near and dear to my heart, I, I don't think that it is the determining issue that the, a large percentage of the people that you think are, you know, persuadable are going to be persuaded on. I think they're going to be persuaded by their hatred of China, their ability around free trade and localization, their desire to get out from underneath COVID and finally see their grandparents again. Like, I think there's lots of other issues that they care about, and climate's not going to be the determining issue for them. Yeah, Claster was telling me that Andrew Claster was the pollster I talked to who was um, one of Obama's uh, data guys in the 2012 election. And um, he said that he found that climate change is considered a major crisis or real problem by 80% of the public, over 60% of Republicans and about 80% of independents. So I I don't think that, that it's a topic that we're debating the science on at this point. Um, but people don't vote for that necessarily. They'll vote for whether I have clean drinking water. And sometimes that that will be in a local election rather than the national election. They want jobs. They want to look to the future. I think everybody does. And when people start talking about low information voters, which I feel like is the most offensive term you can possibly use, it's like... I'm sorry, but um, people have a lot on their minds and they're trying to do a lot of things at once. And I think connecting the dots for people is is part of the issue. Like, let's make sure that they understand that the decisions that our public officials make can fall down to what happens when they take their kids to get tested for learning disabilities that were caused by lead. I mean, there are all kinds of things that 
that are handed down and if we can connect the dots for folks and certainly people who are in communities that have been negatively impacted by by environmental issues are well aware of that um but we need to get them to show up to vote and i think it's my husband uh does this mangled quote of vince lombardi which is like showing up isn't some things it's everything i mean we have to get people to turn out and not try to just go for like the 10 people who may be well you might be able to get if you get more people out you're going to get more people on your side okay let's wrap up the show by talking about oil even for a mega energy company 17 billion dollars is actual money and that's the hit that bp just announced it's taking to the value of its reserves and other upstream assets. All of a sudden, the oil isn't worth as much. Uh, it's A lot of it is related to the record collapse in demand from the pandemic. Uh, it's challenging the oil price assumptions that BP made as they decided how much oil to drill for. And they're just going to leave a lot of it in the ground now. Is this a sign for other companies? And what happens to the clean energy strategy? Um, how do they make clean energy more valuable for the company itself. So Jigger, react to this $17 billion write-down for BP. What does it tell us? So I think that um, this is all intertwined with what we've been talking about, right? I mean, I think it starts with the Carbon Tracker Report and how, um, you know, the oil just hasn't been a very profitable endeavor for companies like BP. I mean, one of the biggest things that BP did was it reduced its long-term oil price forecast from 70 bucks a barrel down to 55 bucks a barrel or so. And and when you do that, lots of investments that they decided to do over the last uh, eight or nine years no longer look like they should have done them, right? And so now all of those assets are worth less today than they were when they thought that oil was going to be at 70 bucks a barrel in the future. And so once you decide that you are going to make that level of change, well, then you have no choice but to write down the value of those assets, right? Because auditors expect you to to make that change. And then it has ripple effects across the entire company, right? So the debt that BP has been borrowing in order to pay uh, dividends looked like a safe bet because people said, well, I'm giving you $15 billion of debt and you've got $100 billion worth of assets. And so... It looks like, you know, you've got enough asset coverage for the amount of debt that I'm giving you. Well, when you write down 13 to $17 billion worth of assets, well, now it looks like I'm actually more exposed as a debt provider. So now the debt costs for BP theoretically go up, right? And so there's ripple effects across their company from, you know, this one decision of changing the long-term oil price. Is this unique to BP? From what I understand, BP had a much higher assumption about long-term pricing. And so is this going to hit BP particularly hard because of what it was planning, or is this coming for other oil majors as well? Well, it may hit BP harder. I don't know that I know all the internal price targets for all the oil companies because they're not often public. But I will say that I think it's going to hit everyone equally, right? Carbon Tracker, that was clear about that 10 years ago, and it's rolling out exactly the way they suggested, right? Which is basically, we're in a situation now where um, these companies have basically been unknowingly, let's say, just to be generous, um, have been investing in projects that systematically lose money, 
right? Literally, they put out a hundred bucks and they get ten bucks a year back for ten years. That's just basically bringing giving them a return of their capital. They're supposed to be making 20% return on equity, right? That's why they take all the risk. That's why they work with weird governments. That's why they like do all of this stuff. That's why they subject themselves to all sorts of price volatility with oil markets, right? It's because they're making a higher return. At the time at which you realize that you're not getting any of the benefits, you're not getting any of the upside from taking all those risks, well, now getting an, a more stable 8 9 10% return on offshore wind, on geothermal, on carbon sequestration and storage, all look like way better investments than the investments that you were making before. But the problem with that is the people in middle management don't know how to do those other things, which is why Bernard Looney ended up laying off all those people within BP, mostly white collar desk jobs, because he was like, I can't change them. I can't change the way they think. And they are only sending me deals that they want to fund. And so they're not sending me through the bureaucracy of BP, you know, climate change related deals. They're they're sending me only oil and gas deals. So the only way for me to to change the culture of BP is to get rid of all those people in the middle who are sending me these deals and leave the people in place that were sending me the other kind of deals. And then maybe I'll get more deals that come through that look like, you know, deals that are supposed to fit with our long-term vision for the company. So Jigger, I have a question for you. When you look at companies like Orsted, Vestas, Nextera, First Solar, all of those companies have higher multiples than BP or Shell. Not only that, but they have less volatile returns over five and 10 years. So is it better for a company like BP or Shell to spin out the renewables or keep it inside? Because if you, they'll get a higher valuation for the renewables and then get cheaper capital to build more projects. So is it better for them to keep that internal or spin it out? Well, so that question is more of a capital structuring question, right? It's not necessarily a shareholder question. So like, so if BP has $3 billion worth of renewables on its balance sheet, and they basically are only getting, as you're suggesting, a lower multiple, um, the reflecting in their stock price, then you would spin it out and you would get a much higher multiple on those cash flows, right? Like NextEra or other people are getting. First Solar is not as relevant because they're more of a manufacturing facility as opposed to an, an asset owner. Um, and so then, then you would be able to get more cash for it, right? So if they spun it out, they could potentially sell that $3 billion for $5 billion to other investors. And that cash either would go back to their balance sheet or they'd only sell $1.5 billion of it. They'd take a gain on the rest of it, right? The other $1.5 billion that they still own is now worth, let's say, double what it was before. And and their shareholders at BP still own 50% of that spun out division, so that higher multiple is being reflected in the price. Remember, it's similar to if you remember Yahoo, like was a terrible company and like, but their their market cap was still high, and then it's because they owned like ten percent of Alibaba, and it was really Alibaba's shares that was like boosting Yahoo's shares. So that's sort of how that works, right? And it's absolutely the case that that BP could basically become a warehouse co, right? So what you would say is that we have by far the best engineers and risk managers in the world. And so if you're going to build a really complicated, really hard offshore wind project, then it should be our engineers that do that because we're the best, right? And then once the project is fully operational, 
well, there's someone else that's willing to pay 12 times earnings for that project. So we should spin it out and not consolidate it on our balance sheet, because that's how you get the most value for what our engineers created. So but that's a capital structuring question, not what BP and their, you know, tens of thousands of workers should be doing. Yeah, Jigger, thank you. I'm obviously not an expert in this. And so it's helpful for me to understand that better. One of the policy issues I've been thinking about um, that we don't talk that much about is master limited partnerships, which are have been used to great effect by the shale industry with pipelines, because they're able to restructure, it's a tax advantage structure, they're able to restructure into partnerships and double their value instantly. And um, because they generally have been traded at twice the earnings than, um, than the wider energy sector uh, master limited partnerships have. And we've been trying for a long time to get those um, available to renewables and storage and, you know, other clean energy technologies. Do you think that's something that would that would work on the policy front? No, because we've largely solved it with yield coast, right? But that's not true for like biofuels, right? If you're going to build an advanced jet fuel facility that uses biomass instead of oil, right? Or if you're thinking about doing carbon sequestration into salt mines, or if you're thinking about, um, you know, advanced technologies like compressed air storage, um, these are the kinds of technologies that scare investors. They're like, well, what happens if something goes wrong in year five and the compressor blows up and, you know, we own this project? Isn't that going to affect our returns, right? And so so then they what they do is they go to like, you know, an insurance company. And we've, you know, there's a lot of folks who sponsor our podcast, like Energetic Insurance or others, who've said, we'll wrap the project. And if anything goes wrong, then we'll pay out. But a lot of those guys are saying, we're not even comfortable that we understand what's going on. So we're not going to wrap these technologies. Well, the people who are smart enough to wrap these technologies are people like BP or Halliburton, right? These guys work in the most punishing conditions and know exactly how to operate safely. And we, you know, spill you know, tens of thousands of words of ink on when they get it wrong, but they largely get it right. You know, they largely keep people safe and um, keep people protected. And so you can imagine that those people play a crucial role in risk management around the rest of the um, decarbonization movement um, that we haven't really, you know, spent the bulk of our time talking about. So the rallying cry of a part of the climate movement is now keep it in the ground. And what BP is saying is that, uh, you know, up to $10 billion of this early stage oil and gas uh, exploration is just going to halt. So essentially, it's keeping the oil in the ground. What does it mean if a company like BP isn't pursuing those plays? I mean, is BP essentially agreeing that the pandemic is accelerating the shift away from fossil fuels? Can we say something so explicit about this? Yeah. So when you read the World Energy Review that BP comes out with every year, and it's a bit of a Bible, frankly, to most of the uh, to the global industry, people read it voraciously. And this that came out, I think, yesterday. And Robert Rapier, who's a close friend of mine and a uh, big skeptic of renewable energy and other technologies that I hold dear, uh, reviewed it. And I mean, he came out with something shocking, right? He basically said um, that BP, through its energy review, is basically saying that the oil industry is in managed decline, right? We've been talking about how coal has been in managed decline, right? It's fits and starts, Asia's building more plants, da da da, whatever, like there's lots of stuff. But in general, we sort of see the story arc around how we're going to get to very little amounts of coal being burned by 2050. I don't know that we had that story arc in mind even a year ago or even 
six months ago on oil. I think what BP is saying with its new energy review is that almost 100% of all new energy that we used in the world in 2019 came from renewable energy, right? That is a big deal, not just electricity, but all energy, right? And so, so, what, so part of what that means is if you're a shareholder of BP and you're saying, are they ascendant or are they in managed decline? They are now saying that they kind of hit peak oil. And there might be a couple years that are higher and larger than this year, but not that many more. That in general, that oil demand is actually probably going to stay flat and then start going down over time. So that means that that they are now trying to maximize their profits on every dollar that they can make today because shareholders no longer really believe that they're going to be more profitable 20 years from now on their oil business, right? And so it means a much different world. Now, I don't know that all the rest of the oil companies agree with BP, but that's that's basically what BP said with its energy review this week was that that oil is now no longer ascendant. And the IEA said something similar about 45 days ago, that they thought that we would potentially never use more fossil fuels than we did in 2019 globally. It is that time of the show to give our listeners our free electrons. What exciting, fascinating, new is happening in our intellectual lives that we want to share. Catherine, what do you got? So I was noticing that on Instagram, there is this whole Instagram effort called Cooking with Gas. And there are a lot of influencers. There was a big piece in Mother Jones about this too, that are, you know, they they show their cooking skills and they have these beautiful pictures of themselves cooking and it's always cooking with gas. And this is all funded by the gas industry, of course. Um, but then I was thinking, well, let's see if they're doing this for beneficial electrification. And they're really not. They're like fewer than 100 posts on beneficial electrification, most of them just advertising webinars of dudes talking about it. Um, and if you look up electricity, it's mostly focused on or electric cooking, it's mostly fo- focusing on new technologies. Um, so I was, I just think we need to tell stories better. We need to tell our story better if we are trying to move to all electric. We need to talk about that and get people who are social media influencers to, you know, to use this equipment and make a make a thing of it, because certainly the gas industry's figured it out. Wow. I had no idea that even existed. That's really fascinating. It tells us something bigger about the gas industry's fears about a lot of these local regulations. I mean, we're now uh, seeing a, this major attack on um gas connections in cities and potentially states. And so I had no idea they had rolled out a campaign to to combat that. It's a pretty, like, that's a pretty, I wouldn't say genius, but that's a pretty smart campaign if you want to convince people. Yeah, it's it's baller. It is because a lot of young people are cooking now, um, and and you know there are these like cool new co- chefs out there, and they're also social media influencers, and uh, so they they might listen to them. Somehow, cooking with beneficial electrification does not have the same ring. Yeah, <laughs> we need a better term. Cooking with lightning. Cooking with lightning. Ooh. <laughs> Jigger, what's your free electron? So. Um, as many of you know, I've been uh, a big fan of figuring out how to get the ride-sharing companies to move to 100% EV. And this week, Lyft announced that they were going to 100% EV by 2030. Um, it warmed my heart. Um, I think it, you know, 
uh, largely came from pressure in the state of California that was going to force them to do it anyway by 2025. But but that's how it works. And so I'm proud of my friends at Lyft for coming out with this. And while I don't think it's aggressive enough, I think it's on the mark. And I'm glad that... um, Glad that they came out with it publicly. But do they all wear masks while they're driving? I hope so. At least I've I've <laughs> been forced to be in a lift twice. I think during the the COVID crisis, and both times the driver was wearing masks. So, yeah, I've taken my own car to the woods and to the grocery store, but not a hired car. And I have no idea when the next time will be. I just don't feel don't feel comfortable. So. Let's go back to polling. This morning, I saw this poll from Politico and Morning Consult that showed that nearly two-thirds of Americans now support major reforms in policing, and one-third say they're in favor of defunding the police. Like, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, almost nobody understood what the term defunding the police meant. I think there's still a lot of... Yeah, I would say that nobody still understands what defunding the police means. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, there's still a lot of explanation that needs to be done because it means different things to different people. Um, On one end of the spectrum, you have reform. On the other end, you literally have defunding and dismantling police departments and coming up with something entirely new. But in general, you've seen this extraordinary shift in public opinion on this one set of policies that almost no one was paying attention to three weeks ago. And, you know, over the last few weeks, over the last couple of years, actually, I've really, as I've watched the activist wing of the environment, environmental movement push the climate change issue to the forefront, I have become more understanding of the role of getting people in the streets And I know that sounds maybe a little naive or like I was slow to understanding that, but I truly believed that the economic arguments, the business arguments, they would all resonate and push this issue quickly. And what I think we're seeing right now is that you get bodies in the streets, you get people pushing an issue, you can change perception on an issue very, very quickly. Now, police violence is much different than climate change. But when something dramatic happens related to extreme weather, uh, when you get people out in the streets raising awareness of an issue that puts it in front of folks in a different way, you can clearly shift public opinion. So I feel like what I'm watching play out in the streets and in public opinion right now has direct resonance for how people feel about an issue like climate change. Well, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I, I literally had no idea what defunding the police meant. I thought it was a weird term. Um, I totally agree with you on the Overton window and the need for you know folks to be in the street. And uh, so Kamala Harris was schooling Meghan McCain on what it meant on The View. And so I watched that clip and like I totally got it. I'm like, you know, we basically force the police to do all sorts of things that they're not good at, whether it's mental health or homelessness or other things. And I think what they really mean is to shift that part of the budget which is half to three quarters of the budget to social services, as opposed to, you know, having the police do things that they're not really well trained to do. Well, right. So we, I know we were joking about low information voters, but like I am definitely a low information voter when it comes to the policing issue. Right. And so what I have learned over the last couple of weeks is just how absurd it is that we send someone with a gun and a badge to all sorts of situations that, 
other types of people are equipped to handle. And you can de-escalate a scenario in a very different way rather than having an armed police officer there. And I never, ever thought of it. I just, it, it was never something that crossed my mind or um, I had to deal with in my own life. And now that we're having this national conversation, it's completely opened my eyes up to a whole new set of issues and policy prescriptions that I hadn't been thinking about before. And I think you can do the same for any issue. Yeah, it becomes visceral. Yeah. And I, and I would challenge you around whether this is not the same as climate. I actually think it is exactly the same as climate. I think when you think about how many black and brown people, you know, are killed every year based on just proactive policies that we have around having, you know, people of color living in you know, clean non-attainment zones for clean air, um, et cetera, right? I mean, just people have so much higher like lung disease and asthma and all sorts of other stuff, which, you know, I would say is, is you know, e- e- equally discriminatory um, in, the way, in the way that it works. And to close this out, that's what Catherine referenced earlier. Swing voters really respond to that. So many of them don't really understand the Trump deregulatory efforts. And if you go to them and say, this is how it's impacting you, uh, your community, it very much resonates with people and it changes how they think about the issue, even if they know nothing about what the Trump administration is doing. So I think you can absolutely make this stuff real for people. That doesn't necessarily change the way they vote, but let's hope it does. Yeah, here's hoping. Well, that's it, folks. Uh, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my wonderful co-hosts. You can find us all on social media or the Energy Gang there. And we take your uh, recommendations for show topics right there in our direct messages or just tweet at us. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor, getting up nice and early to watch us record on the West Coast. Um, We are a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Oh, next Wednesday, June 24th, we're doing a live episode of The Interchange. So make sure to sign up for that. And we will catch you next week. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy.